welcome to a new weekly podcast series called USERF Spotlight, hosted by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, an independent federal advisory body. During each episode, Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, features a special guest to dive deeper on various topics and breaking developments that impact the universal right to freedom of religion or belief around the globe. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. I'm Dwight Bashir. Today we're going to talk about the impact that the reemergence of the Taliban in Afghanistan will have on religious minority communities in the country, particularly the Hazara Shia community. During the Taliban's time in power from 1996 to 2001, the Taliban discriminated against and violently persecuted the Shia Hazara community, which they labeled as heretical. Subsequently, the Hazar community has continued to face targeted attacks over the last 20 years by the Taliban and ISIS-K. In the first half of 2021 alone, the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan documented at least 20 attacks targeting Hazara, resulting in 143 dead and 357 injured. Among these attacks was the car bombing of a school in Kabul, time just as female students were leaving for home. At least 90 were killed, mostly Hazara schoolgirls between the ages of 11 and 17. Similarly, there was an attack in May of last year on the maternity hospital in Dashtabarchi, a majority Hazara neighborhood in Kabul, and also a suicide bombing outside the Kausara Danish Center, an educational institute in a Hazara neighborhood in October of 2020 that resulted in the deaths of dozens of students. And just in July, the Taliban reportedly massacred at least nine Hazara men when they captured the Ghazni province. Religious freedom conditions in Afghanistan have drastically deteriorated since the Taliban seized control of the country on August 15th. This is, of course, extremely alarming and is an issue of great concern for those vulnerable minorities in Afghanistan, including the Hazara community. Today, we're fortunate to have with us Farhonde Akbari, a PhD candidate at the Australian National University, who is a member of the Hazara Shia community, and Andrea Gittleman of the Simon Scott Center for the Prevention of Genocide at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having me. Thanks again. Uh, let me start with Farhonde. Uh, the Hazar community has historically faced persecution and discrimination in Afghanistan, as I mentioned, due to their uh, differing faith and ethnic origins. However, over the past 20 years, uh, the Hazar community has made strong political and economic gains. Uh, can you first give our audience a brief explanation of why the persecution goes back decades in the first place, and then tell us if you fear that the gains that the community have made uh, in the last 20 years might be lost with the Taliban back in power? Um, thank you for the very important question to contextualize um, today's Hazara situation and tracing back their history um, the relation of the Hazaras with the Afghan state has been a tragic one. Uh, there has been different episodes of um, discrimination, persecution, and mass massacres, um, starting back from 1890s uh, when um, back then the Emir of Afghanistan, um, uh, Abdul Rahman Khan, 
um, committed a, what we call a genocide, uh, which we believe, um, and there has been um, records of that, uh, um, and also scholarly um, writings that some 62 to 63% of the Hazaras have been wiped out uh, from Afghanistan, and that uh, and the remainder were forced into central Afghanistan in the mountainous region with uh, very limited access to any sorts of facilities. And at the same time, um, if you look at the Hazara diasporas um, in Quetta, Pakistan, and in Iran, um, you see that they are the generation are who are the survivors of those massacres um, from the 1890s. Um, mainly from Uruzgan, um, from um, um, other parts of um, of, of the Hazara um, provinces, and then we come up to uh, the more the more contemporary history of Afghanistan. But the systematic discrimination continued um, directly and indirectly um, against the Hazara people, and then with emergence of the Taliban in the eight, in the in the nineteen nineties. Um, again, gave um, color and 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 uh, a lot more um, bloodshed uh, took place uh, within the Hazara communities, uh, going back to their identities, but using the same narrative that were used against the Hazaras um, in the 1890s, such as uh, the Hazaras are the infidels, the subhumans. Hazara were dehumanized and demonized once again under the Taliban regime. And then we saw the mass, the mass massacre of the Hazaras in Mazar-e-Sharif in August 1998, um, in, in Bamiyan, in Yakaulang, um, all within that four or five uh, uh, years that the Taliban were in power. And then we saw... Um, the cultural genocide of the Hazaras, which was the blow up of the um, historical Buddhas of Bamiyan, which was something that the Hazara community uh, was proud of and something that they could trace back um, their um, connection to Afghanistan, their historical um, linkage to Afghanistan, to prove that narrative that were used against the Hazaras, that they are inferior or they're outsiders, they're remainers of Genghis Khan's army, to say that we existed here as this is our homeland. And there's a lot of folk stories, historical evidence to show that the blow up of the Buddhas of Bamiyan was um, 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 that, that that cultural genocide was just another extension that um, the Taliban uh, that happened under the Taliban regime, um, in addition to the other massacres that they committed. And then post 2001, um, yes, it was a golden horizon for the Hazara community. For the first time, they were recognized as an equal uh, uh, people, citizen of Afghanistan under the constitution, their rights were respected. But of course, there was, um, again, um, systematic discrimination um, against the Hazaras um, 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 in Afghanistan post-2001 as well, which took uh, its root from that historical um, precedence. Well, Farhan, the, the, the Taliban seem to be sending this time around mixed messages uh, to the community. On the one hand, you know, they're they're making claims of change and reform and promising protections for religious minority communities, including the Hazara. However, their words don't seem to match their deeds, uh, as, as we know. Is there any hope from within the Hazara community that you're aware of the Taliban uh, have actually uh, 
made some changes or are they bracing for a new wave of persecution? Look, the Taliban's did an action not matching and the Taliban's propaganda and their PR. I think this is well known to the world by now, especially post-2018 when the U.S. Taliban agreement was signed. Uh, so the Taliban who makes this narrative is one thing, is their strategist and their, uh, their, their uh, public relation committee. But the fighters and the commanders where the Taliban have their forces, that's another, that's, that's the reality. That's the day-to-day um, dealing that uh, the people of Afghanistan in general, and then in this case, the Hazars in particular have with the Taliban, which is um, uh, that the Taliban of the past have not only changed, but, but they have gone more brutal more sophisticated in their crimes, uh, in their atrocities, um, and at the same time, uh, uh, very, uh, very much emboldened because of that fact that they believe that they have defeated a superpower and here they can continue because what, they, what the Taliban have been doing so far um, empowered them. It, 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 their suicide bombing, their attacks, their brutalities, their violence um, um, uh, uh, earned them the, the, the status that they have today. So it is, it, it will be very naive for the world. Um, I think they are aware by now to, uh, to, under, to, to, to frame it that way that the Taliban have changed or believing um, the PR narrative that the Taliban have been putting in place. In the Hazara community, no, um, there is not a single person or a person or, or, or a percentage to think that the Taliban have changed for good, especially in, in relations to the Taliban, um, because we have not seen anything changed, but we have, we have seen the continuation of the Taliban attacks, the Taliban's um, way of discrimination against uh, the Hazaras. They commit uh, violence across Afghanistan, but when it comes to the Hazara, they go another mile. They go an extra, they take an extra step in their brutality. And and the community is very well um, aware of it. And we we see it, we feel it. And we have been living with that in the past 20 years, even though the Taliban were not in the government, but but, um, their presence in the country and um, their episodes of violence and a, a large part of it has been their uh, attacks on the Hazara community in particular, whether it is um, the roads that were leading to Hazara provinces where the Taliban were stopping cars and um, taking out and shooting only Hazara uh, passenger or the beheading that happened uh, in 2016 of the Hazara um, uh, uh, women, men, uh, uh, children as young as um, nine-year-old that also triggered a mass uh, mobilization of the Hazara community to protest against the government for not protecting them. So everything, if you call every single Hazara, uh, be it in the diaspora or in the country, they do not believe uh, because they have not felt any, any sense of change from the Taliban um, and, 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 and unfortunately, what they will tell you is that it, it has gone much, much worse. Well, thank you for laying this out very clearly. Uh, obviously, the recent developments are, are showing, as you're saying, that it's a PR campaign and, and they're already 
demonstrating their overt persecution and, and deep-seated hatred. Uh, let me turn to An Andrea. Um, the, the U.S. Holocaust Museum recently issued a statement on August 23rd expressing its deep concern that the Hazara Shia community are at risk of crimes against humanity and even genocide. Can you tell us what prompted that statement and how uh, the U.S. government and others in the international community can support the, the Hazara community? Sure. Well, thank you again for, for inviting me to join you. And thank you to, to Farkanda for uh, outlining the the serious risks that the Hazara community faces. Uh, so as, as you know, the, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, we, we teach that the Holocaust was preventable. And then our center, the Simon Scott Center for the Prevention of Genocide, wants to make sure that we speak out when we see a community today that, that could be at risk of genocide or crimes against humanity. And Afghanistan is a country that um, even before the, the Taliban takeover a month ago, was um, at very high risk of a future mass killing. We have an, an early warning project which forecasts the risk of a mass killing in countries all over the world. Um, and Afghanistan was listed as number two in the, the list of countries at risk. So this is a country that I think people have been watching for some time. And of course, we are especially alarmed now uh, one of the, the reasons is, of course, as Farkanda has outlined, the serious violence and persecution that the Hazara have faced in the past. Um, Afghanistan also has uh, you know, risk factors that we see um, across other cases that could lead to uh, future mass killings, things like um, political instability, there's ongoing armed conflict. And in this particular situation, you have potential perpetrators with exclusionary ideology. So both the Taliban and ISIS-K, as, as both have been mentioned, um, have an ideology that might lead them to, um, to you know, uh, carry out campaigns of genocide against the Hazara or, or perhaps others. And I think if we look at the past, we've seen that the Hazara um, you know, have faced these extreme forms of violence and the perpetrators have not properly been held accountable so it, it seems as though there might just be a, a few restraints on uh, perpetrators who might want to, to commit these kinds of crimes. So for, for those reasons, we wanted to issue a statement from the museum and express our concern um, and, and make sure that the world continues to, to watch what, what is happening in Afghanistan and keep an eye on what's happening with religious and ethnic minorities, especially the, the Hazara. Uh, to get to the other part of your question, you know, the, the U.S. government has many tools at its disposal to, to create policies, to prevent atrocities. Other governments, of course, have these tools as well. Uh, something that the U.S. government can and could do would be to you know, conduct an, an updated atrocity risk assessment. This is something that we at the Holocaust Museum do, and it's a tool that's available and used throughout government. Uh, there's a framework developed by the State Department and USAID to analyze potential perpetrators and victim groups to think through different scenarios in which uh, you know, mass killings might happen. And that's really essential in order to plan upstream prevention efforts. So I think it would be important for the U.S. and for countries around the world to really keep a close eye on uh, potential uh, scenarios in which the situation might become even more dangerous for the Hazara. So it's great that we know that these mechanisms exist uh, to, to uh, highlight and try to prevent uh, future atrocities. But what about monitoring the situation day to day? I know, uh, you know that this is all part of that, but if there are uh, violations that occur, 
Uh, Andrea, can you tell us about uh, what are some of the ways that the U.S. and international community can hold the Taliban accountable for violations that happen in real time? Sure. So many of the people who are best placed to document atrocity crimes and other human rights violations, so Afghan civil society leaders, many have been forced to flee. Uh, those who remain face significant security risks. Their work is extremely dangerous. And yet documenting what is happening is really essential. You can't have strong, effective atrocity prevention policies if you don't have information about what is happening. Um, so even though this, this work is harder now, it's, it's certainly not impossible. So there are a few options. Uh, one would be to support civil society organizations. Uh, some are, are in Afghanistan, but many are out. And helping those organizations continue that important work of documenting crimes and reporting on what's happening, they, they need support now more than ever. Uh, I think it's, it's also possible to look at the creation of, of uh, an investigative mechanism like a fact-finding mission. These are uh, mechanisms that have been created in the past at the Human Rights Council. This has been done for Burma, Syria, North Korea, places where crimes are happening and places where it's it's often difficult to, to safely gather accurate information. So that is one way that not only the U.S., but countries around the world could press for this kind of international mechanism in order to make sure that that information can be can be shared it's also possible to to look at you know not only renewing but expanding the mandate for the UN mission in order to allow it to to document and, and really monitor what is happening. Um, and just to, to note that monitoring the situation is it's essential, but it's it's not an end in itself. It's that step to creating broader, you know, effective atrocity prevention policies, and that's really what's needed for the the long term protection of of the Hazara and other communities who might be at risk. Thank you for that. Uh, Farhanda, let me uh, uh, get back to you and shift for a minute uh, to, to the role of Iran in intervening on behalf of the Hazara community in Afghanistan. As you well know, the Iranian government is often accused of supporting the Hazara Shia community against armed uh, Sunni Islamist groups. And according to recent UNHCR estimates, uh, there are about 780,000 registered and over 2 million undocumented Afghan refugees in Iran, many of them Hazara. In your opinion, is Iran looked to for support generally by the Hazara Shia community in Afghanistan? And if so, how does this dynamic impact the way the community could be treated by the Taliban and this complicated relationship that the Taliban has with its uh, neighboring Iran? Um, thank you for such an important yet uh, sensitive question. Um, if I may uh, make a judgment, um, Iran being a Shia theocracy in the region, a neighbor of Afghanistan, and then the Hazara persecuted Shia minority group in Afghanistan, I think that alignment has further made us more vulnerable rather than giving the Hazaras um, um, a support, um, and I will uh, lay out um, lay out on this uh, f further. Um, but coming back to Iran's support for the Hazaras, I think we need to look back to Iran's foreign policy, which is which is pretty much uh, based on its national interest. Uh, much more than its ideology as a Shia theocracy. And that make Iran to make decision about its foreign policy to um, uh, uh, 
play differently um, in Afghanistan, especially, and have several uh, sort of scenarios for itself, um, rather than just um, thinking that this is a Shia minority group and I need to support that. And this is what we have been seeing in the last 20 years, especially. Um, the U.S.'s engagement in Afghanistan um, is another layer that, uh, an important layer that influences Iran's foreign policy in Afghanistan. And the opposition to the U.S. invasion or the U.S. engagement in Afghanistan is the Taliban, right? And here, uh, and then recent uh, emergence of documents and uh, facts and um, uh, scene that we have seen for Iran's support for the Taliban, not for Hazars, not for other um, groups in, in, in Afghanistan, tell us that fact that Iran is um, Iran's foreign policy, I mean, in the bigger sense, with having the U.S. involved, um, um, uh, it's much more than um, looking to an, um, a minority group like the, like the, uh, the Hazars. So I think that that um, that tell us that um, uh, about the complexities of Iran's engagement in Afghanistan, their relation or their support or uh, uh, rela- uh, in, uh, engagement with the Taliban, and at the same time the historical ties. Yes, there has been some sort of support with the Hazara communities, especially in the during the civil wars um, in the 1990s. It was not just the Hazaras, but the um, the Jamiat Islami, predominantly by the Tajik community, um, um, uh, were there. But th- that has changed. That has changed to an extent that um, Iran was a re- uh, as a realistic actor looked that uh, the U.S.'s presence and the Taliban's opposition, um, and 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 it was a surprise probably to the world, um, to everyone else, but. Um, uh, uh, but, but we saw that um, um, Iran's support for Taliban, at least for Taliban's factions, especially the Mullah Rasul faction, and then their sort of covert uh, relation that sort of emerged more in 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 time, um, uh, tell us that uh, it's not the ideology or the Shia relation um, of Iran with anyone in the region, but it's more about their own national interest. Um, this is like a very vague. Um, um, and very broad sort of contours of, of, of what Iran is doing in Afghanistan. But coming back to the Hazaras and its relation, I think the Hazaras are the weakest card for Iranian uh, foreign policymakers to play in Afghanistan, just because Hazaras, um, yeah, they're a minority group. Um, they're, not the, they're not the main power bro- uh, broker in the country. Therefore, um, Iran's relation is, um, it's, it's reduced to that hosting um, Hazara refugees. Um, undocumented. I myself have lived in Iran as a as a child um, um, uh, in early two thousands, and I was not a, even able to go to school. So uh, that, but that uh, uh, Shia identity that Hazaras share with Iran makes us further vulnerable, as I mentioned in my er, um, in my early comment, is because that in Afghanistan we are seen, uh, we are being labeled as a spy or as a supporter of Iran in a Shi- in a in a state that is predominantly Sunni. So I, that, that's why I said that it makes us much more vulnerable. 
having that relation or having Iran as our neighbor um, in Afghanistan. Um, and on the other hand, um, the Hazara's uh, relation or the Hazara's um, realignment with the U.S. with post-2001 order in Afghanistan for democracy, for human rights, and um, their cooperation with uh, with uh, with uh, the U.S. and its um, uh, international partners in Afghanistan put us in direct opposition with Iran because here we are not uh, uh, we are siding with. Iran's enemy, which is the U.S., rather than the uh, the, the opposite. So I think uh, we need to be very careful about how we frame Hazara's relation with um, with Iran from uh, in post two thousand and one, and and go down to and find the substance of of these relations, because in the political level it's very easy to brush it off. But when it comes down to practicalities and to, to the substance, um, um, uh, Hazara community believe that our um, just uh, the fact that we share the semi religious identity with Iran makes us much more vulnerable in Afghanistan while we do not receive any support uh, from the Iranian state. Thank you for really uh, unpacking that and, and sharing the, the various uh, complexities of that relationship. It, it is very helpful. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it right there. I want to thank uh, Farhunde and Andrea for sharing their insights today uh, with our audience. You can find USERF's work and policy recommendations on Afghanistan on our website at www.uscirf.gov. I should also note that the that USERF uh, recently called on the State Department to expand its Priority 2 or P2 designation, granting U.S. Refugee Admissions Program access for certain Afghan nationals and their family members to include members of religious groups at extreme risk uh, of persecution by the Taliban, and that would certainly include members of the Hazara community. Over the next few months, we will feature other religious communities at risk in Afghanistan and with the Taliban now assuming power. Thanks for tuning in today, and we'll see you next time on USERV Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USERF Spotlight.